HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by New York Mutual Trading. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who's inspired me with the way that they've navigated their life and their business and come out doing something that they really, really love. A goal for all of us, I'd say. Today's guest is Valerie Gordon. She's the co-founder of Valerie Confections and the maker of one of my very favorite chocolates in the universe. She launched her business in 2004, which means that this is her 15-year anniversary. Congratulations, Valerie. One of the things that I find so extraordinary about her is that she is constantly moving forward. She is never doing the same thing twice. She has a restless mind. So I'm delighted to invite all of you into Valerie's world with me today. Welcome, Valerie. Thank you so much, Dana. So... Your baking began when you were a kid. Yes. And I have to say, today's confections are not very childlike, though I'm sure they delight children. They're so sophisticated. But can you bring me back to your childhood? And you were one of four girls. You were living in San Francisco. Um, your parents were working, so you were a latchkey kid. Like, what was that like? Like, what did baking do for you, like, way back then? Baking gave me comfort, and I think baking was a great activity for me. I was very, I would say I was a pretty food-centric kid. Um, Food was something that I looked forward to, and it was something that I just sort of, I was naturally kind of good at. Um, Baking was something that came very easy to me as a child, and like, do you remember the first thing you made? And you're like, oh my God, this is really great. Yeah, I think it was, you know, I think it was the process and seeing there's a very, um, uh, there's a quick outcome to baking generally, particularly something like cookies or a cake. It's, you don't have to wait days and days in order to get fortified from your work. And so I really liked that, that in an hour 
I could put together a batch of cookies, bake them, and then the response from people was really exciting to me. I love that people would be happy, like my sisters would be happy on days that I would bake cookies. I would feel happy, and the next morning I would wake up and be like, yes, there's cookies <laughs> for me to eat today. And You know what I mean? And it is. I think that is that sense of forward thinking, anticipation, gratification that I still feed off of. But wasn't there something about how... Um, you know, you didn't love being home alone. I didn't love being home alone. And I was very nervous being home alone. And, um, you know, it's so funny. I, I was a child in the 70s. At seven years old, second grade, I had a key to my home. And because of our school schedules, I'm getting home by myself. And no, I was absolutely extremely nervous being home alone. It made me really uneasy. Um, and there were two things that got me through that period. One was baking and the other was General Hospital, which <laughs> I, I... Did you do those two together? <laughs> Sometimes. And, you know, Luke and Laura, I always say Luke and Laura were my babysitters. I really <laughs> developed a deep attachment to Luke and Laura, and I still have that attachment to this day. And Do you think something would go wrong, like someone would break into your house and then the baking just distracted you? The or? baking distracted me and it yeah. gave structure to my time. Mm-hmm. It did. And I didn't do a lot of after-school sports in grammar school and things like that. And I, I would say that just by nature, I'm programmed to be very product, or not product, project-driven. So I like you gave having... gave yourself a project I gave myself seven. a project. <laughs> and, I, and I just kept giving myself projects. And throughout my childhood, I just, I was constantly giving myself culinary projects and I would do things like, you know, these gingerbread houses. When I was 13, I said, um, you know, sushi's my favorite food. I want to eat sushi every day. And my mom said, well, you need to learn how to make it then because I'm not buying you sushi every day. So I read a sushi cookbook and I learned how to make sushi. Oh <laughs> and, and I would stand there and fan the rice and get all the ingredients at the Japanese store. And I did the rolls and I would do these sushi meals. And so it it truly, it was just sort of an innate sense of industry, I think. Now, that, and, sense, that yeah. sense of industry is genetic, right? Yes, I your, think it is. Your grandmother um, had a job. Yeah. And your mother also had a job. Had a job. Yes. So what did the women in your family do? Uh, my grandmother, so all of my grandparents were the immigrant generation. Um, my father's parents came from Romania and England, and my mother's parents came from China. Um, my grandfather, Orgungung, on my mom's side, he, I think he came from China when he was in third grade, about that age, um, spoke no English. Um, my grandmother, or papa, spoke no English, and this was, it was a time when it was illegal, for Chinese people to come into the country. So they came with paper, right? They had paper identities, and that's a whole different conversation. But it's they, an amazing conversation. It's an though. amazing conversation, and one that isn't acknowledged that Chinese people weren't allowed to be, um, weren't allowed into the country until the late 1960s is crazy. <laughs> Did they have harbor anger, like in your oh, childhood, absolutely. that you felt? Yes. There, there was a tremendous amount of cultural and racial separation. Um, so what does that mean? Uh, well, 
my mother married a significantly older Jewish man. Hmm. And that did not go well. That was not the expectation. That was not the expectation. Um, and there was forever a, a chasm hmm. because of that cross marriage that occurred. Absolutely. Um, so my, but my papa, um, owned my mother insists it was not a sweatshop. It was mm-hmm. a sewing factory. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was a business owner. Mm-hmm. Um, my, but then my father's mother, mm-hmm. I don't believe worked very different. Um, but I definitely come from this line of very strong women. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where you're going. Yeah. Very strong women. Um, my papa was really smart. She was very smart, very savvy, and quite a survivor. And what did, did you learn anything from that? Did, from what, what I understand, she didn't actually speak English. She did not speak English. So what you would have learned would have been instinctive or through your mother. But. Yes. And it was also, I think, through observation. Mm-hmm. Um, we were absolutely expected to be very res- respectful towards her. Um, I think that the struggles that they went through to come to America and, you know, they came penniless. And my grandfather held, I believe, three jobs, ended up buying property in San Francisco. He had 12 grandchildren, all of which had college degrees. That's not bad. <laughs> that's quite an That's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that that's a short line to success. You know, through a lot of hard work, I think tremendous sacrifice. Um, How does that make you feel about sacrifice? In the Because you have two kids, you mm-hmm. have a partner who works in the business with you, you've seen sacrifice, you've seen the success as a result right. of sacrifice. Like, how do you feel about sacrifice? <sighs> I think work is something that I assume. It's not a question for me. And it's something that is naturally tied into, it's intrinsic to my fiber. So I, I never look at my life and think, oh, well, maybe I'll work. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm going to work. Yeah. And I think that I, I definitely bear a sense of responsibility for um, my family's welfare, my family's comfort, my family's success, for sure. So you were seven years old in baking, and you were 13 mm-hmm. years old in making sushi, mm-hmm. um, but you didn't end up going into uh, the culinary arts as no. your first job. I did not. My first job was actually, my, my initial dream was to be an actress. I got my degree in drama, and my minor in Asian American Studies at San Francisco State. Um, So that was my initial dream. And I was also very, very interested in fashion and design as a teenager and young adult and sort of fixated with these things, I have to say. To this day, I have, my God, I probably have 30 years of Vogue (laughs) (laughs) in various storages around the place between San Francisco and Los Angeles. And baking to me was my comfort zone. And people always said to me when I was growing up, you should really do this for a job. You should really do this for a job. 
as I entered my young 20s, I would gift cookies and candies to people for years. And people would always say, you should really do this. <laughs> and I'd say, no, this isn't, this isn't my career. I love doing this, but it's, you know, it's my hobby. It's my private thing that I do. This isn't my job. This isn't my career. And then in my early 20s, um, I started working at restaurants. And the first restaurant I worked at was a supper club in the South of Market in San Francisco. Um, and it was one of those wonderful, you know, dot-com boom oh. places <laughs> where we served caviar, we served tete cuvées by the glass. It was, Fancy it was really, yeah. like, it was funny. You know what I mean? There were 11 tables. Oh, my goodness. And... Um, I knew absolutely nothing about wine or spirits at the time. And to my great advantage, there was actually a petite sommelier at that location who really recognized that I didn't know anything and said, okay, I'm just going to teach you. Nice. As opposed yeah. to like, you're an idiot yeah. and no. get off the floor. No, yeah. he, he taught me and I learned quickly. And from there I went to, I worked at Restaurant Lulu which was oh. my first, my second restaurant job. And that was a very... So you were doing the typical, like, I'm going to be an actress. Yes. I'm going to be a waiter. Yep. I'm a whack dresser. Yes, exactly. So I went on auditions and did that sort of thing and booked little jobs here and there. And I was also working at a restaurant. And very quickly, I started, like, rising in the ranks at the restaurant and... It was sort of like, yeah, I get this. I understand this industry, and I understand how this sh this works. And I was also super into it. It's interesting because, like, like, what I'm hearing is there's a lot of intuition that's played yes. into what you've ended up doing, which is actually very practical. Mm -hmm. so like, you run a business, mm -hmm. which is very practical, but the baking was very intuitive, yes. and somehow the you know running or managing a restaurant mm -hmm. was very intuitive. Yeah. What do you think those skills are that like just burble forth from you? I don't, you know, it's, it's so interesting. I like, you look at pe the way people's brains develop and how they are as children. And one of the things that I loved doing from the time I was like three years old was puzzles. Uh -huh. And I like putting things together. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a huge definer of how I function. I like putting things together. I like seeing the whole thing be created by the different pieces. And what do you think, if you were going to recommend to somebody that they, you know, hone that skill uh -huh. of their own, like what would you tell them to do? I think task completion uh -huh. is really important. Um, and I would say that currently we live in the day and age of dilettantes mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and a lot of taste testing. Yeah. And I would say commit to something, commit to something, finish it, and then move on to the next thing. And that sense of completion, I think, will inform the next. That's very wise. So you were um, working in the restaurant, yep. you were good at it, yeah. but you also, you had a pivotal moment that, you know, was not of the restaurant, which was an illness. Yes. So when I, so I was in San Francisco and working, working at these restaurants and doing things. And I moved to Los Angeles 20 years ago, no, 21 years ago now. Um, in 1998, I moved to Los Angeles and I 
immediately start managing Le Do Cafe at that time, um, which again was a great place to land. And I got, and I was also, I've always been a big exerciser. And I ran a couple of marathons. So I started doing all this distance running. And after the second marathon, um, I was really having a lot of physical issues. And one day I was like, oh my God, I can't move my legs. (gasps) And I was laid up for a significant amount of time. I truly what happened? I mean, do you walk. know what happened? Yeah. I had a broken back. Oh! Yeah. So I had a congenital disorder that I wasn't aware of. And my one of my vertebrae split into three places. And I didn't know it. And the whole area sort of imploded. So I had to get uh, part of my hip removed that went into my lower back and then I had another uh, back surgery and in between these things I contracted an infectious disease <laughs> I like you laugh now that sounds like a low it was, point it was it was definitely a low point it was it was an extremely low point and it was a very scary point um so you know, my lower back was totally reconfigured, and then my whole digestive system was sort of taken apart and reconfigured because of this infectious disease. And I was really, really sick. And I was sick to that point of, this might be it. Wow. Like, my body was just dissipating. And I, I, and I sort of stopped seeing myself as a functioning person and you know when you're in your third week in the hospital at 30 years old it's like what how you know what I mean it's all of that really scary stuff so um no, I was actually 31 when that happened. Yeah, I was 31. And so you really I thought, get, like, this could be the end. Like, this could, my, be, the, this could in, be it. Infectious disease could, could just take me down. Yeah, this could be it. Yeah. This could be it. Um, my body couldn't process food, you know, like, and, like, chronic pain is a thing. Mm-hmm. And chronic pain really gets into your psychology mm-hmm. in a very, very deep way. And I was in a level of pain for an extended amount of time that in hindsight, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, that, that actually wasn't a very extreme situation. Yeah. And I think when you're in it, you can't truly analyze what's happening. You're just sort of experiencing, you know, everyone's coming and looking at you and giving you those looks of, oh shit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was really skinny, you know, all that kind of stuff that's kind of horrible. So, um, but probably at that time, your brain wasn't really working saying, oh, God, I should no. make some chocolate. No, 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 no. My brain was not working and saying I should make some chocolate. Um, at that point it was like, how am I going to function? Mm. And so, and I, I do recall I had sort of a turning point in the hospital where, you know, I, I'm like in and out of sleep and this sort of drugged fog for day in, day out. And I woke up one day and I just thought, why am I here? And was that a deeper that question? Was, that was a deeper question. And not but like, but like, why am I here in the hospital? And mm-hmm. that really gave me this psychological switch to go, I got to get out of this hospital. Hmm. 
You know, and I do think the power of the mind is so much stronger than the power of the body. So, um, and truly, I think the next day I was released from the hospital. Like, it was quick because I was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Like, I'm not supposed to be here. What am I doing here? And my body just started working again a little bit. And so I was able to get out of the hospital. But then I, I was under sort of continual medical care for a very long time. I had three years of physical therapy. Um, I had sort of like constant medical appointments, this, that, and the other. I was definitely depressed. I was in chronic pain for a very long amount of time. And how did you deal with that? Because it was you know, hard. You're in the world, right? Yeah. And you're like, I'm better. I didn't die. Yeah. But it's depressing. It was depressing. You know, it was horribly depressing. It's all the time is depressing. Yeah. And-, and it was alienating. And it was one of those things as a very young adult. It was something that no one understood. Right? right. Dana's nodding. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's a funny thing because you probably could have looked at me and thought, oh, she's fine. Right. Um, I was definitely not fine for quite some time. And it was, it was hard. That was a very hard point in my life where I would wake up in the morning and think, and I would still be in my dream state. And then I would look around and go, oh, shit, this is real. Like I would wake up out of that dream state and go, oh, my God, this is my life. And figure out, okay, now I've got a rollover on my side and able to sit up. And then stand, and how long can I be on my feet for today? And what you know, and it was like that for, for like two years. That was my life. And was there something that during that time you grasped onto, like um, that would turn the day from sort of ugh, to something better, or you know? Did you just, you one foot in front of the other? That's. It was a lot of one foot in front of the other. Um, I was very fortunate during that time where um, this was, I still worked at Ledo Cafe um, for uh, Michelle Lemmy. And I worked part time with full insurance and was able to sort of do these because, like, she and, you know, her business partner sort of understood. Uh, that I, A, needed to work fiscally, and I needed my health insurance. Um, and I was able to get a lot done in like four or five hours. That's amazing. So, so I would go to work for like these half days and get a ton of work done and then go to physical therapy or go do this or go do that. So because I couldn't sit up for, and I couldn't be on my feet or sit for super extended amounts of time still during this healing process. Um, and... Overlapping with all of that, I found, um, you know, moving my body was still extremely important to me. And during this time, I became a certified yoga instructor as well. Sure, because <laughs> you have a back problem yeah. and an intestinal problem, so right. of course you're going to be a yoga instructor. Right. And then I also found the most healing thing for me was to focus on other people's bodies. That was the best therapy it's for me. It's good that it didn't make you just jealous. Like, I can't believe they can do all that stuff and I'm in pain. No, it was it was a very, it was truly the best therapy for me. Hmm. And to understand other people's bodies and have that sympathy for them and to instruct them and really understand, okay, this muscle moves this muscle. That moves that again. It's a puzzle. Right. This all works together. <laughs> the body all works together to create this one unit. So 
you know, through all of this, you know, I'm still, I'm still a manager at Ledo Cafe. I'm dealing with these health things. And I'm also, um, I developed this sort of private yoga following, which was interesting. And I had this wonderfully supportive group of people who, you know, I would go to their homes on, you know, like at like eight o'clock at night or Saturday morning and do, I had some group yoga sessions. I had one-on-ones and just like this really incredible group of people, some of which really became very strong. A lot of them are older than me. They become just incredible mentors in my life and relationships that I still have today, like really important relationships. So it was, you know, it was, I would define that as one of the hardest times in my life and also one of the most formative times in my life. I'm still trying to get at the, how you dug yourself out. Like what, what was it or what, um, you know, is there something that you look back and like, that's the technique that got me from, you know, misery to, to better. And then I'm curious how chocolate came into it. (laughs) Um, so what got me from misery to better? I think, um, and this sounds really, really sort of new age. I think reclaiming my body. Mm -hmm. I do. And my darling, darling sister, Tina, um, who is closest in age to me, of the four of us said to me at one point when I was really deep in illness, she said, don't forget your body is yours. Mm. That's still upsetting to the day. I know. I know. And it was amazing. You know what I mean? And, and I, I think that, I think it's important to remember what we own Mm -hmm. and more than anything, we own our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so that moved you forward through it. Yoga mm-hmm. certainly reclaims your yes. body. Yes. And then you focus on what to put into it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, you know, again, my happy place was always sugar. <laughs> <laughs> and some butter. <laughs> it was sugar and a lot of butter. A lot of butter. So, um, you know, through, you know, so all of these things are going on, right? Up, down, up, down for many years. And through it all, I'm still making candy and baking. And uh, before this time of extended illness, I meet Stan Whiteman, who is still my partner in life and work. And our first uh, evening, like our first date together, all we did was talk about food. So the second we got together, we're, we're making food together, we're cooking together, we're talking about food together. And we, you know, I had always made these fairly elaborate gifts for people. Um, And then he and I get together and it just became sort of uber what it was previously because he's very technically savvy in a way that I'm not. So he could do all of these different designs and things and print them out. And we had this uh, sort of funny homespun brand called Tall and Small Productions because he's six foot four and I'm almost five three. Um, so we are literally tall and small um, or extra tall and small. So uh, these, these goods became more elaborate. And I would say um, 
you know, by our like third year together. And we had like really been through a journey because he was with me during the whole time of illness and hung in there, which was not easy, not easy. Like we both really went through it. And so, you know, we're making these gifts and in 2000, uh, New Year's Day, 2004, uh, Cafe closes. I missed that piece of the story. Yes. So that I see. Yeah. So Lado Cafe closes. And then it's like, interesting. What you do I do next? I needed to make a decision. I needed to you make got a decision. Into it. I got forced into it. And this is sort of an interesting personal choice, culinary choice, and political choice because um, I was uninsurable. Of course you were. I was uninsurable. And it's only gotten worse, but... Oh, yeah. I was... But I was at... This is pre-Obamacare. Right. So I literally was uninsurable. I had very significant pre-existing conditions and was under continuous medical care. I could not get health insurance. So Le Do Cafe closes, and I actually personally... And a lot... I, I feel like a lot of people don't know this... I personally maintained a group health insurance plan mm. for like three months out of pocket. Right. Um, to, to keep yourself insured. To keep myself insured. Yeah. So I'm, I'm putting out 1500 whatever it was, dollars a month. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, to keep this group going. And after a while, it was like, this can't go on for like, this is a problem. You know what I mean? This is a problem. There's a limit to how long I can sustain this. Right. And I can't be without health insurance. So I was told by my doctor at the time, well, you could certainly declare yourself permanently disabled. What a great opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, various expletives floated through my head. <laughs> I just like... What a horrible yeah, thing really. for, you know, a 32-year-old, yeah. you know. Why don't you just declare yourself permanently disabled? Yeah, why don't you just... Like, what does that do to the psyche? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So just put that blue palacard on your car and, oh. you know, here you go, honey. So for me, that was not an option. And so, um, and at the same time, I'm thinking for my career, what have I always loved? What has truly fueled me in my life since I was a child? And how do we put all of these years of experimentation, education, and professional know-how together? And so I woke up one day, and I didn't feel like, oh, shit, this is my life. I thought, toffee. I was like, toffee. I feel good about toffee. <laughs> I feel really good about toffee. And I think toffee's the answer. And I think that let's put together a company where all of our skills can come into play. So we can create products. We can have this really fun branding because Stan and I both really enjoy beautiful, yeah. design mm-hmm. and packaging and sort of the experience of aesthetics, yeah. I would say. 
are all things that we're very motivated by. And it was like, let's make a company with this. So that was the beginning of Valerie Confections. And we also learned that if you form an LLC, for which you only need two people, you can have your own group health insurance plan. <laughs> so <laughs> with that, we're going to take a quick ba- break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk to Valerie Gordon about some of the amazing food that uh, she creates for Valerie Confections for the cafes, um, the, the chocolates, and uh, get ready to drool. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by New York Mutual Trading, the premier Japanese food, alcoholic beverage, and restaurant supply specialist. Mutual Trading is the Japanese food authority, true to the heart in upholding genuine Japanese food traditions, and progressive in exploring new ways to provide innovative restaurant supplies and services. They import, export, distribute, and manufacture the top brands for retailer and food service customers nationwide. Learn more at nymtc.com. Hey there, seems like you like podcasts. My name is Eli Sussman. I'm a chef and restaurant owner, and I've got a great podcast right here on Heritage Radio Network called The Line. On my show, I interview chefs and restaurateurs about the trajectory of their career. It's a one-on-one conversation where we talk about where it all started to where they are cooking now and everything in between. You can find The Line everywhere you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. It's Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is Valerie Gordon, and we are talking about chocolate now. We've been talking about health and life and finding your purpose, um, but now we've gotten to toffee. So mm-hmm. I'm, I have to ask this. If you were any one of your confections... Mm-hmm. What would it be? Like, what represents the most Valerie of anything that you've ever baked or made, and why? She's thinking, God, I'm torn between <laughs> two things. This is hard. It's either the almond fleur de sel toffee or it's the Durango cookie. Uh, tell me why for both. Um, I think that there's dimension in them, and something that I... Something that leads me to a sense of satisfaction, whether it's my food or someone else's food, is a depth in flavor. I, and I, I always call it the underbelly. Like, I want that flavor to go deep. I want to hit high notes, mid notes, but I want that flavor to go deep. And if flavor doesn't go deep, I leave dissatisfied. <laughs> so, <laughs> almond fleur de sel toffee is a very, very buttery, crunchy toffee um, filled with almonds dipped in 61% bittersweet chocolate and topped with fleur de sel. The Durango cookie is a milk chocolate chip cookie with cocoa nibs, roasted almonds, and smoked salt. It's super buttery, crisp on the outside, chewy on the inside. It's sweet, it's savory, it's satisfying. Um, I think that both of them have sweet and savory notes, which I really, really enjoy. Um, I think there's something slightly modern but also totally perennial about both of those things and that's you you're both you're like a little old-fashioned and a little bit moving forward yep i love your obsessiveness i mean i do think you agree you have an obsessive streak 100 percent. yeah and like i've seen the obsessive streak come out in the research that you've done in historical cakes Mm -hmm. um 
I love the notion of reclaiming the past because yeah. so many of us are just focused on the future. But you, and often when we are doing something in the future, we're taking a, making a nod to the past. But you went so much farther than that. Yeah. Like you recreated the past. Yes. Without trying to toss your own, you know, um, I think your own sort of point of view on it. So can you tell me about the the cakes and the um, the either the Chasins or the Blum's Bakery or mm -hmm. just your project of reclaiming the past. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that um, we all have an emotional attachments to desserts. And this has clearly driven my career. Um, but I think as a society, we have that. And desserts in particular really, really touch upon our happiest moments. And there's something about dessert that sparks a level of sense memory that I think savory foods don't. Um, I think that the birthday cake that you had for every birthday is something that you will ev forever remember. And you will be able to taste it, see it, smell it. You would know the, uh, the slice proportion that you want. There's all of this wonderful dimension to these traditions in our lives and these moments in our lives that really define our stories. Um, so the resurrection of these desserts, I, I really approach these projects with complete respect for the origin project, for the origin dessert, whatever it is. And I really view myself sort of as a conduit to bring it back. It's, it's not about my perspective on it. It's about bringing this back for people. And Valerie Confections, I would say the ethos of the company, which was born 15, you know, 15 years ago, we, we came up with this tagline, um, which was for gifts or personal indulgence. And that's really what I still see today. Um, it's really something to make give someone like a really, really happy moment so or to give yourself a really, really happy moment. Do you have a personal connection to that Blum's um, I do. bakery cake? So the Blum's Coffee Crunch Cake was the first one I did, and I grew up with the Blum's Coffee Crunch Cake in San Francisco, and it was a cake that I wanted to taste again. <laughs> <laughs> and by happy coincidence, um, Laura Zarubin, who was the Los Angeles Magazine the, the uh, L.A. Times Magazine food editor in the late aughts um, was doing a story about wedding cakes. And her idea was that couples should be able to get whatever cake they want. Good it can't her. just be yeah. like a white cake. <laughs> and so she's going through all these different types of cakes. Like the hummingbird cake was in there. Like there was these really interesting cakes in this, in this story. And she approached me. Um, and said, hey, have you ever heard of the Blum's Coffee Crunch Cake? And I went, stop. <laughs> yes. And she was like, do you think you could figure this recipe out? And I was like, yes, I know I can figure this yeah. out. And there was just an amazing reaction when this story came out. And we got phone call after phone call after phone call. And people in tears. People so grateful, so excited, so thrilled. And I just went, okay. This is, this is bigger than one cake. And there are more cakes that spark this. So, you know, it just, it sort of went from there and it turned into a true, I, I really like history, I have to say. Um, uh, and, and there's something I think particularly with food, 
where we always have to look back as we look forward. And I think that, you know, as, as food evolves, as um, it becomes a, a more sort of indulgent thing that we all uh, participate in, um, it's really important to look at where these things come from. Like, I'm a huge fan of places like St. John. Oh, sure. You know what I mean? Like, and I. England. Yes, yes. Like, I like historic food. I like traditional historic food. You know, I, I also enjoy modern sort of fusion food and all the, you know, hor- you know, vertical, horizontal landscape plating and all these things that go on well, and all the squeezy bottle food, like I, I like to call it. But. but <laughs> Um, um, there's something about, uh, you know, the most traditional method of say, uh, bourguignon or something like that, where you kind of just have to give respect to that. So let's talk yeah. about, um, how you do like, I'm um, squeezy yeah. bottle food. I don't know, but, um, <laughs> I'm going to take a buzz on that. Yeah. But, um, you are always pushing desserts forward. Yes. And so it's not as though you only look, I mean, the, no. that project in the past was something yeah. very specific. Yeah. The it's an arm. It's an arm. It's an arm to the tree of Valerie Confections. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I love the one where you're experimenting with, uh, do you call them grilled or barbecued? Yes. Grilled. Grilled. Yes. Um, grilled desserts. Now, yeah. um, at Food & Wine, we certainly did our fair share of you put things in foil and you bake yes. them and they get melty. Yes. So it's not as though it has never existed, mm-hmm. but I feel like the way in which you approached right. grilling desserts is original and sort of sets a course for the future that people mm-hmm. really haven't looked at yeah. before. So how did you fall for like the green egg and grilling desserts? I love the green egg so much. <laughs> I mean, I could I could cook everything on a green egg, I have to say. Um, I fell well, in love with this. describe to people what a green egg is. So because- a green egg, the big green egg, we call it BGE. <laughs> the big green egg is a Komodo-style grill. It, it, it has a ceramic top and bottom uh, circular sort of dome structure, and there are various grates inside. And what's amazing about the big green egg is you can really control the temperature of it for for a long amount of time in a way that you can't just say on an open fire grill or a traditional Weber grill. It's much harder to control the temperature in a non komodo style grill. And Big Green Egg isn't the only brand that makes these. There are several on the market now. My favorite is the Big Green Egg. And I think that it is an incredibly well-designed appliance. And they're also indestructible. They're phenomenal. (laughs) The egg doesn't doesn't break. The egg doesn't break. So, um, but how did you decide to, you know, get grill flavor into desserts? So, as you mentioned earlier, I am obsessive. (laughs) And once, like, something piques my interest, I go deep. And I go really, really deep. And um, I wrote a book a few years ago called Sweet, and I was on book tour. And for some reason, I was scheduled to be in Texas for nine days. That's I know. So long. I was. Really I know. Long. I know. I was in Texas for nine days by myself, and I just thought, I need a project. <laughs> <laughs> what else am I going to do but sign cookbooks in Texas? Uh, and and so you know, I, I'm a periodical lover, as you know. I like the printed word, and I grabbed an issue of Savor magazine off of my bookshelf that said Texas, and I was like, "Oh, I'll let Perfect. me let me go deep on this on the plane," and I read that magazine like cover to cover, 
two or three times. And before I was off the plane, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to, I'm doing a barbecue tour while I'm in Texas. So I self-assigned a project once again. (laughs) I mean, I really haven't changed since I was seven. So I self-assigned a project to really learn about barbecue and taste different kinds of barbecue. And I have to say, I fell in love with barbecue on that trip over five years ago. And I love you know, and I think this is the baker in me and just sort of the cook in me. I love the transformation of ingredient to dish. And I like ritual in food, and I like to explore regionality in food. And barbecue is, my God, Do you, you, have, you have culture, you have history, you have regionality, and you have such distinct methods of preparation that result in the most glorious shared food. And I, I am also just this huge advocate of sharing food. I like community food. So, and when you stand around a barbecue, everyone's in it together. Yeah. And I just think there's something so wonderful about that. That's the purpose of food. Um, so I like that it's outdoor. I like that it's communal. Um, and I like that everyone's got a different take. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like a real strong take. And so I started being like a weird um, barbecue stalker after that trip. And I, would, I just kept looking into barbecue in different forms. And I got really into like some of these smaller underground barbecues that happen. And, you know, I think that barbecue sparks the same thing, no pun intended, that <laughs> dessert does where there's that sense of anticipation. Mm. And I think that when you get a box of chocolate and you're unrobing the box of chocolate, taking off the ribbon, opening the lid, it's the same thing as waiting for brisket to finish. <laughs> like you can't love that. wait. <laughs> you can't wait yeah. for, you know, for the brisket to become perfectly yielding and, you know, have that gorgeous congealed cartilage that just all melts together and you know it's it's a very similar feeling i think that happens like really i'm just i'm always looking for the joy of food yeah i am <laughs> i am so and you know the more that i got into the barbecue scene i was like i i want to participate in this i want to play with these folks they're all so fun and i want to do this and so i just started experimenting i was like and then i looked into it, i was like there's not enough grill why why is no one grilling dessert why can you only bring a pie how come you can only bring a pie to a barbecue and why isn't there dessert on the barbecue and i started playing with it and i was like hot damn this is untapped and then I, you know, I put these big green eggs at the Echo Park Cafe and I start grilling things in front and grilling desserts. And people are, were just started freaking out. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean you're making caramel? What do you mean you're making a chocolate cake? And it was as if it had never been, you know, no one had thought of it before or seen it before. So I think with all things Whenever I teach a a baking class or a cooking class, my main uh, philosophy that I try to impart on people is give yourself permission to do this. Mm -hmm. And there's something very liberating, I think, about showing people how to grill desserts. There really is, because it's something that they've never thought of, and they think for some reason that they, quote, can't do it. Right. But sure you can do it. (laughs) There's Um, a heat source. There's a heat source. (laughs) You got butter. Right. (laughs) You can do it. 
So, and yeah, and I just, I, I love the, and I think just also being in indoor kitchens for 15 years where it's, you know, chocolate making, pedophore making, all these things, it's incredibly repetitive, which I do enjoy on a different level, but it's nice to do these things that are outside, that are part of a larger meal, where you have a lot of personal interaction with people and sharing. I think it's very exciting to me. So what else is next? Because as I began the podcast, I was like, you have a restless mind. Yes. And so I know there's something next and you're, you know, realigning and reformulating. And I just had some amazing, um, chocolate bars. Yeah. Um, the black sesame. Thank you. Um, it just sort of blew my mind. And actually it got me into a little bit of trouble because, you know, um, I shared the bars with my family Except I noticed that they were eating it as if it was Hershey's, like mm-hmm. just shoving it in their mouth. I'm like, no, <laughs> you have to like take time with yeah. that. You can have one square at a time, and don't just like nibble through it. And I want to have the last piece. Anyway, it was a little silly, but um, I'm just wondering what yeah. what's next. Um, what's next? We are we are putting together another location, um, which will be a desertery. Um, and there and we will have mean? a dessertery. Is it's a full dessert experience, and I do think it's the culmination of 15 years of work in dessert. I do. So we'll have tasting menu dessert or desserts. It or? will like you will walk in. The space is 1,300 square feet, and there will be every cake we make, every pastry we make. Tons. I I really have this visual of a lot of cookie jars like a lot you know what I mean (laughs) I want to see a ton of cookie jars all the pastries all the cakes all the pedophores we are doing um two ice creams there which is exciting ice cream toppings so it's just sort of like you know it's it's a whole dessert experience right so that's happening I'm also um I'm ready to write another book it's time. It's time. Yeah. It is. So, and this is something as I move forward, I, I feel like I have a lot of books in me. I do. So, and I have a, I feel like I have a good idea. I'm putting together the outline now. That's great. For a book. I mean, you love to teach. Yeah. And you have certainly honed technique. Yeah. So, and you have a strong personality. <laughs> so all those things <laughs> together seem like they're really good for a book. Um, and the other thing I'm doing a lot of is television. Uh-huh. I love doing TV. I love it. Yeah. Love it, love it. And it's one of those things that, you know, originally I had set out to be an actress and found that wasn't my path. Food is my path. And now it's all coming back together. Um, I love being on a set and, you know, doing food on camera is fun. Yeah. And my last question that I always ask my guests is um, if you could suggest a woman to mm-hmm. pay it forward like yeah. someone who you think is underrecognized and people need to know about in the world of food in the world of food there are i would say three people i would like to call out in los angeles um there is one very genius um concept that I think is starting to get some traction. They have a small booth at the Hollywood Farmer's Market. It's a miso company. Mm. And this young woman is doing really, really... It's I believe it's called Miso DTLA. And, um, okay. And you love the the innovation. She is doing... Well, she has really, really smart packaging. 
So she's doing these little different flavored miso balls in the most bespoke little boxes. It's so cute. It's so charming. I've I purchased them for gifts and also gifts for myself. Um, um, so I think that's really, really, really good. Um, there is a local baker who I think does not get enough acclaim. Her company is called Sarah Bearclaw. Okay. Um, she sells a lot of granola, but I'm not kidding you. Her pastries, and I just, I want everyone who listens to encourage her to make pastries again. <laughs> she stopped and she did this gorgeous sausage pastry that was one of the most delicious things ever. Um, so I would say Sarah Bearclaw. Okay. Um, and then the third person, does it have to be food? Um, it has to, they have to be female mm-hmm. and like in our general world, but try me. <laughs> general. So there is, I'm blanking on a name. Can I Google it? I'm, I'm Googling the um, miso person. Oh my God. It's so good. So there, I would also say there is a, um, there's a baker who works out of Little Doms okay. in the Las Feliz area. You're staying right by there right now, dating. You should pop up That's there. That's very good to know. Yeah. She makes a sweet focaccia that is beyond exceptional and I'm totally blanking on her name okay right so the name of the for all of you the mm-hmm. name of the person at the miso is IAI Fujimoto oh and yeah. um, and at first it was a miso was first a hobby for um, Fujimoto um, she was a technical translator at a Japanese manufacturing company in mm. Torrance and then she ended up obsessed with miso and she started a company called omisoko it's really 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 smart okay yeah great it's so good and so Mm -hmm. smart and then i would say my third person that i want to pay it forward to who i also find to be under recognized in the los angeles pastry world is ann kirk and she is the pastry chef at little dom's and you know, the pastry world, I think, in Los Angeles is getting really, it's, it's robust. <laughs> I mean, there's so many people that are coming in from San Francisco, New York, opening places. You know, these huge places are opening everywhere. And I encourage everyone to look at the, the neighborhood places that have been here for 5, 10, 15 years. What has defined the landscape of every major city and not just the well-funded, huge monoliths? Um, and I think Ann Kirk is one of those people that, for some, like, her work is just so consistent and so delicious. And she, like, on my birthday, I go there to get one of her savory, sweet focaccia because it's just, it's perfectly executed. Yeah. Um, I just want to echo your thought about, um, you know, the neighborhood places, right? Because mm-hmm. everyone's always got the list and the list mm-hmm. is always new. And there are people who have been making great food for yes. a long time. And we really need to support those restaurants yep. because they've, 
they're delicious and mm-hmm. fabulous, not because it's a pity party, yeah. but because they shouldn't be forgotten in this quest, this endless quest for the new and being yep. everywhere that everyone's being seen. So um, that's great. Thank you for those three amazing recommendations. Um, that's what we've got today for all of you. Thank you for listening. Valerie, thank you so much for joining me on Speaking Broadly. Um, it's great to catch up with you. And if people want to find you on uh, social, where would they find you? At Valerie Confections. And uh, ValerieConfections.com is our website. And I actually launched my own website as well, ValerieGordon.com, where I will be posting a lot of content in the coming year, a lot of recipes, and it's a great place if you have baking questions. If you have a historic dessert that you want to see resurrected, reach out. Um, Bella is a great teacher, and I've watched her do a lot of uh, baking videos. So, yeah, you can learn to cook along <laughs> alongside her. And you guys know where to find me, at FW Scout on Twitter and Instagram. Send me any suggestions, uh, either for guests or about the show. And have a really great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.